The following message is a paid advertisement. Overcrowded classrooms, record educator vacancies, yet politicians want to give $500 million to a California billionaire and stash $2.4 billion in reserves, while our students and educators suffer. It's a rainy day in Nevada. It's time for 20. Paid for by Nevada State Education Association. Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And this week, I've got the second half of a story that we started talking to you about last week, about the fentanyl crisis in Nevada. A crisis that federal drug enforcement agents call the deadliest they've ever seen in the agency's history. The story took months to report, and I interviewed more than 20 people for this piece. If you haven't had a chance, listen to the last episode on our website, thenevadaindependent.com, or search for Indie Matters wherever you get your podcasts. But as a quick recap, in last week's episode, we looked at what fentanyl is, how it can kill, how it's getting into our communities, and how lawmakers are trying to tackle the problem. Fentanyl is often mixed in with other illicit drugs or sold on the street as fake prescription opioids like Oxycontin or Vicodin. In some cases, people are then buying those pills or something like cocaine, heroin, or meth and using the drugs without realizing that fentanyl, which is much more deadly, is mixed into the drug. We also talked about the discussion around fentanyl and how you can't speak about fentanyl without talking about the opioid crisis and the illicit drug market. Part one of the story followed former professional BMX biker Ryan Mills and his struggle using opioids before getting clean. We heard from Senator Nicole Cannizzaro and Attorney General Aaron Ford, both Democrats, who talked about the bills they proposed to fight the fentanyl crisis. We heard from the Drug Enforcement Agency, better known as the DEA, and how they are facing off with drug networks and tackling the problem. And we talked to Elise Monroy, who works with Overdose Data to Action, a program from the National Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which looks to get better data for fentanyl in Nevada to help tackle the crisis better. In this episode, the second part of the story, we'll look at where the demand for fentanyl is coming from, talk to harm reduction advocates about ways they want to lessen the harm of fentanyl in our communities, and try to better understand what the future of the fentanyl crisis looks like. Part four, the bills continue. Okay, so here's where we left off. The state is proposing to tackle the fentanyl problem in the legislature which is meeting right now until June. We heard in episode one that Governor Joe Lombardo, a Republican with a law enforcement background, wants to make any amount of possessed fentanyl a felony. Fentanyl, possession in any amount, should be a category B felony. We also heard about two pieces of legislation proposed by top Democrats, Senate Majority Leader Nicole Cannizzaro and Attorney General Aaron Ford. Aaron Ford for the record. Nicole Cannizzaro, Senate District 6. The two bills, Senate Bill 35 and Senate Bill 343, worked in tandem to create classifications for low-level, mid-level, and high-level trafficking charges, starting for people found with as little as 4 grams of fentanyl. It also places fentanyl in a separate category from other drugs, which means harsher punishments if you're found to have fentanyl. Finally, the legislation would make it easier for law enforcement and prosecutors to go after those who sell and distribute fentanyl. Here's what Attorney General Ford had to say about the bills during one of the hearings. Stated succinctly, I'm not trying to recreate the war on drugs during the crack cocaine era. Contrary to anything any person in opposition will say, we made mistakes then, and we need to learn from those mistakes. We don't want to repeat those mistakes here. That's why this bill is not intended to go after those who are struggling with addiction. We learned that incarceration does not help those who need help unless help is offered during incarceration. 
But the bills attracted a lot of criticism from people who said that it echoed the war on drugs, first declared by President Nixon in the 70s, pushing for more aggressive law enforcement to crack down on drug possession. Drug abuse. This will be a worldwide offensive dealing with the problems of sources of supply. Lawmakers ended up killing Canazaro's bill and dramatically changing Ford's bill, even raising the threshold for low-level trafficking to 28 grams, up from 4 grams. But even with those changes and an amendment to provide incarcerated individuals with a medical program to help users move away from drugs, several lawmakers voted against the bill. Here's Clark County Public Defender John Pirro explaining why the quest to target people who had just a few grams of fentanyl was so unpopular. We have lost that war spectacularly. It's a lost cause. And I'm not saying you don't keep fighting, but maybe we fight with different tools and tactics. And we haven't done that. So here we are with the same old solution. It's a 1970s solution that doesn't work. And now it's being pressed on us again. It's going to take us backwards. It's a regressive law that really will punish users. Piro rejects the idea that laws need to be tougher. He says drug traffickers are already being prosecuted and sentenced to years in prison under existing laws. Mark Jackson in Douglas County, who's a hard-charging prosecutor, got 12 to 32 years on that woman that was a legit drug trafficker. So there's hefty sentences still being given out. Our laws are not too soft. But Senator Canizaro and supporters of the bill say we have to do something. This is something that has sort of taken on a, a new life very recently. And so we cannot continue to do nothing. Aside from raising the threshold for trafficking charges, the amendment for Ford's bill also includes a proposal to study the costs and benefits of upgrading the state's crime lab and more explicitly target those selling and distributing large amounts of fentanyl. Those crime lab upgrades will be a big part of this episode and are still pretty relevant. And in fact, even though the bills changed and were essentially morphed into one, they are still very relevant to this conversation. They show how some lawmakers want to tackle this crisis from a law enforcement angle and the pushback that emerged through the legislative process. All right, I will call this meeting of the Senate Judiciary Committee to order. So the bill is still targeting dealers going after those who are selling mass quantities of fentanyl, which proponents of the bill argue could reduce the amount of fentanyl in our communities and the harm that it is doing. But here's the catch. Opponents note that the state is facing a gap in its ability to quantify how much fentanyl someone is carrying. It's a point public defenders and opponents have brought up often. Okay, so we're going to get a little technical and geeky here for just a second. When drugs are seized by law enforcement in Nevada, the state has the capability to do qualitative testing, but not quantitative testing. That means that when they're testing these drugs, it can tell you if there is fentanyl present in a substance, but not how much is present. A way to think of this would be like if I made coffee and added sugar and milk into my coffee. A qualitative test could tell me Yes, there is coffee, sugar, and milk present in this cup. Whereas a quantitative test could say there are 12 ounces of coffee, 0.5 ounces of sugar, and one ounce of milk in this cup. Here's Washoe County Public Defender Erica Roth explaining it in an interview before the bill hearing. All they do is test, so let's say you have four grams of a substance, and 3.5 of that could be baking soda or baking yeah. powder. And the rest of it could be some combination of fentanyl, methamphetamine, or cocaine, or whatever it is. But you're not able to distinguish that. And so everyone becomes a drug trafficker because four grams is actually very little. And especially when you're talking about 
regular users or those in the recovery community who are still using. Four grams can be daily use. Roth said it would take a very expensive piece of equipment called a mass spectrometer to make quantitative judgments on drugs. Senator Cannizzaro and Attorney General Ford do both acknowledge that the testing issue needs to be changed and addressed. Here's Attorney General Ford again during the bill hearing. I do agree with this notion of our drug uh, testing tactics here being qualitative versus quantitative. That's difficult, meaning that if you get uh, you know, a sugar packet, which is four grams, that whole sugar packet is going to count as four grams. They, they can't distinguish between uh, whether there was only one gram of fentanyl versus all of it being fentanyl. That's the qualitative approach that our drug laws currently operate under. Um, I would love to see, and I'm sorry for springing this on you, Madam Leader, uh, uh, some level of study associated with transitioning our, uh, our state from qualitative to quantitative so that we can, in fact, make those types of ass- uh, determinations and, and address it going forward. So I, I agree with that particular critique. The other issue opponents point to is how these bills will be implemented on a practical level. Here's Elise Monroy, who works with Overdose Data to Action. So these drugs in Nevada are not always tested. And they sit in evidence lockers because the way that local governments and crime labs pay for seized drugs testing is with court fees. So there's really no money to test seized drugs. So they have to wait for a case to go to trial, which could happen in a year or two years or never if somebody pleads out. What resources does the local government, like does the crime lab have to pay for that? Because what they've been telling public health for four years is they don't have money to do testing of these drugs. I think that there needs to be some really serious questions asked about what is this implementation going to look like? Are you going to be sending these drugs to the crime labs? If that's the case, how are you going to fund that surveillance? But in an interview, Canizaro pushed back on some of the concerns raised by opponents and says these bills will provide the tools to go after drug traffickers. Four grams is roughly 40 pills. It's a lot of pills. Somebody who has 40 pills is not using that for personal use, that we can actually start to target some of that uh, supply side that we've been talking about. Part five, the demand side. So through this whole conversation about fentanyl, we've been talking about how it's getting into our communities and how people are accessing the drug. But there is another side to this coin that hasn't really been addressed yet, the demand side. Here's what intelligence research specialist Christy Nielsen with the DEA told me. We can do our job and we can take off as much as we can but it's got to be two-pronged approach. If we can hit it also at the demand reduction level, educate people. The demand side is a big part of this equation. I talked with several harm reduction specialists and policy experts about this part, like Dr. Carla Wagner, a UNR professor who studies the negative health outcomes of people who use drugs. Here she is explaining harm reduction, a philosophy that aims to reduce the harmful effects of certain behaviors, including drug use, instead of ignoring and condemning them or pushing for complete abstinence. I think it's useful to think about harm reduction as not just being about drugs, right? Harm reduction is a philosophy and it's a practice and it's a set of tools, but underlying all of it is an understanding that people 
do risky things all the time. Although harm reduction does not always get the same attention or investment, she says it's an approach that could ultimately save lives. Think of it like driving a car or riding a bike. Those are risky activities, but we minimize the risks by wearing seatbelts or a helmet. Harm reduction is a way of thinking about those risks that prioritizes minimizing preventable harms without requiring abstinence from the behavior. There are some inherent risks that come along with using drugs, and there are many things that we can do to make that activity safer that don't require that somebody be completely abstinent to keep themselves safe and healthy. Harm reduction doesn't strive to eliminate the demand for drugs, but rather to reduce its negative effects. This is something that at first is hard for some people to wrap their head around. Are we encouraging people to do drugs? Is that what this could do? Here's Julie's Monroy again from Overdose Data to Action. When I started doing this work, I thought, well, treatment is the answer. Anybody that that is using should be able to just give them treatment. Well, treatment isn't the answer for everybody. And what the answer to stopping overdoses is, is keeping people from dying. And just because somebody is using drugs does not mean they want to die or that they deserve to die. And we know that there are strategies that can keep people alive. We know that first and foremost, if you're going to use, you should never use alone. Elise told me that people who are using drugs, especially opioids, should carry naloxone or Narcan, which are opioid overdose reversal drugs. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later. But she also said that people that are doing drugs should test their drugs so they know if there's fentanyl in them. I don't want to live in a community where I walk down the street with my kids and there's needles or there's smoking kits. Like, I think there needs to be a balance found between what living in a safe, clean community can be and then like helping people to reduce the harms from potentially chaotic drug use. I feel like the argument against this is just like, well, then you're just accepting that people are going to use drugs. And it's like, I feel like that's just not an acceptable answer for a lot of people. You know, Joy, I've been thinking a lot about what does justice mean when we think about the justice system? And very little of the proposals that we have seen to address the supply side seem very just to me. It's really not those big dealer kingpins that are going to be caught up in this if when these bills pass like that's not the people who are going to be arrested the people who are going to be arrested are the people that didn't know that you know the four grams of cocaine they bought had fentanyl in it so what are some of the solutions that experts have seen work remember this is an unregulated market with no quality control Illicit drugs can be very dangerous, and so there should always be the assumption that there could be fentanyl present in an illicit drug that hasn't been tested. Here's Dr. Wagner again. There are many community drug checking programs across the country that look at street drug samples and test them for adulterants, including fentanyl, but not just fentanyl, because fentanyl is not the only adulterant we need to worry about. Test strips is a, a qualitative test, so it just tells you yes, no, there is or there is not fentanyl in it. The problem with that is you don't know how much, but you do know that there is some fentanyl in there, and so you should act like it's enough. Drug markets are always changing and evolving. 
and new synthetic drugs that are really strong and oftentimes deadly are always emerging. Another concerning drug that several people told me about during this reporting process is xylazine, a muscle relaxer that is not an opioid but is dangerous. Whereas some of the more sophisticated technologies tell you everything that's in the substance. So you can test your drugs right now for fentanyl, but if there's xylazine in it, you're not going to know with the fentanyl test strip. But you could know if there was a community drug checking program. Dr. Wagner came to Nevada to work on opioid overdose prevention. She helped with a law that broadened naloxone access and helped to pass Nevada's Good Samaritan Law, a law that protects individuals from liability if they call 911 in the case of an overdose. But as she was doing that work, people always asked about the next thing. She argued that harm reduction can work across the board. People kept saying to me here, what are you doing about methamphetamine? What are you doing about methamphetamine? And harm reduction is sort of agnostic to the kind of drug, right? In Nevada, we've historically had a high prevalence of meth and meth-related deaths. When you focus too much on one drug, that you're not paying attention to the, the broader phenomenon of drug use in the community. And the reality is that most people are polydrug users. What this means is that most people aren't just doing one drug. Right now around the country, stimulants like cocaine are seeing an uptick in use and deaths when paired with opioids. One former drug user told me that they would pair heroin with meth so that they would get the high of heroin, but that the meth would give them the energy to go out and function during the day. Here's Dr. Wagner again. If we are completely fixated on doing overdose prevention with people who use opioids, and we're not talking to people who use stimulants, but those people who use stimulants are buying drugs that are adulterated with fentanyl, then they're not getting the information they need to prevent overdoses, recognize overdoses, and take care of people. So I think harm reduction as a strategy and as a philosophy is more useful when you think broadly. Supply-side drug policies that aim to reduce the supply of a particular drug tend to focus on just one drug. But when the market of one drug is disrupted, something else will come to fill the void. Experts describe a rotating door of new drugs and new policies that can never keep up. In the early years of the opioid epidemic, when medical opioids were being overprescribed and people were getting addicted to things like Oxycontin and Vicodin, lawmakers and medical professionals made the supply of those medical opioids more difficult to get a hold of. Wagner said the effect has been the proliferation of fentanyl. If that's all you do, reduce the supply, and you don't increase access to harm reduction, they increase access to treatment, then you have a whole bunch of people who can no longer get that one thing, and the market will respond by providing another thing. Scaling up access to harm reduction services and scaling up access to evidence-based treatment and scaling up access to evidence-based drug prevention, you have to do it all to, to make an impact. The research data do not support the idea that there is more fentanyl in the market because more people want fentanyl. The research data support the idea that fentanyl is a market-side response to drug control policies that have eliminated other options. Part six, reducing the harm. Throughout my reporting, I heard experts talk about just how addicting fentanyl is if you survive taking it. It's one reason that the demand has gone up so much. It also made me ask, what solutions are out there right now 
that are working to help lessen the harm that fentanyl is bringing to our communities. One of those solutions is the accessibility of naloxone, or Narcan, which is just a brand of naloxone, which is a drug that reverses overdoses. Here's Republican State Senator Robin Titus, a doctor in rural Lyon County. I've been hundreds of hours in the emergency room, and if you see somebody unconscious, you know, you check them for, for diabetes and a low blood sugar, and you, you hang some D50 glucose to them, but you also give them some Narcan. We know with Narcan, we used to have to draw it up and inject it. But now with this nasal form that we can use, I mean, the police officers are carrying it. We give it and prescribe it with families. Recently, while I was reporting on this story, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration actually approved Narcan nasal spray to be purchasable over-the-counter. This week, the FDA approved nationwide over-the-counter sales of the overdose reversal drug Narcan. Narcan's the brand name version of the generic drug naloxone, which comes as either... It's the first opioid treatment drug to be sold over-the-counter this way. Soon, you'll be able to go into a drugstore and buy it with no prescription. Here's Dr. Wagner. Naloxone is an opioid antagonist. What that means is that it sits on the receptors in your brain that opioids like heroin or oxy or morphine bind to. It, and a simple way to think about it is it moves those opioids out of the way and it occupies that receptor for a short period of time. If someone takes too much of an opioid like fentanyl, naloxone can actually outcompete with the opioid and move the drug off of a receptor in the brain that suppresses things like breathing. Opioids have three main effects. They have an analgesic effect or a pain relieving effect. That's why we prescribe them for pain. They have a euphoric effect or the high. And then they have this respiratory depression effect. And it's the respiratory depression that kills in an opioid overdose. So in responding to an opioid overdose, administering naloxone that can remove the opioids off the receptor and providing supporting breathing for that person until they're able to breathe on their own are the two most important things that we can do to respond. One thing that should be noted, though, is that sometimes naloxone can wear off before the fentanyl does. So after administering naloxone, people still need to be monitored. Katie Gwynn and John Pirro, both with the Clark County Public Defenders, who I talked to earlier, talked about Narcan and also another aid in the fight against fentanyl, the Good Samaritan Law. Right now, Narcan is pretty much sponsored by independent grants. We need more government funding for this because it does save lives. But also our Good Samaritan laws. We need people not to be scared to call the cops to save their friend because they're afraid that a DA is going to charge them with a felony. Good Samaritan laws are laws that protect people from liability when they call 911 if someone is experiencing an overdose. They're an effective way to help fight against overdoses, but they're not foolproof. A lot of people don't know about the Good Samaritan law, and so will be afraid or unwilling to call 911 if they're with someone who may be experiencing an overdose, because they fear they'll get in trouble for their role in the situation. Also, according to Elise with Overdose Dated Action, there is no guarantee that the person will still not be arrested and that their attorneys will be aware of the law. Other aids in the fight against fentanyl are fentanyl testing strips, which have only recently become legal to possess. In 2019, lawmakers passed a bill to exempt fentanyl testing strips from what is otherwise considered drug paraphernalia but they're also not foolproof at preventing people from taking harmful substances. Here's Dr. Wagner. Whether having a fentanyl test strip and seeing a fentanyl positive result changes somebody's behavior is really dependent on a lot of other things, whether they have the resources to throw those drugs away or not, 
whether they were expecting that test to be positive or not. From a harm reduction perspective, it is always better to know. This is why we put ABV labels on alcohol bottles, right? Because you want to know what is in the product that you're consuming. Another way some places are tackling drug use is to use overdose prevention sites or supervised drug consumption sites, which are spaces that allow people to do drugs in a supervised environment. This way, if something starts going wrong, there's a professional there to help. There are many, many in Canada. There are a couple that have just become legal in New York. And these are spaces where people come in with their own drugs and they use them in a space that is supervised, that has naloxone, that has oxygen, that often has many other resources to offer, linkages to treatment if you want it, showers, washing machines, a place to hang out, syringe service programs. And these places provide people a safe place to go. No one has ever died in a supervised drug consumption site, ever. They've been open since 1986. There's 150 of them or something across the world. When there is somebody there who can pay attention and catch you if something goes wrong, you can survive that overdose. And then of course there is all the data, which we talked about a lot in episode one. With better data comes more informed policymakers and harm reduction advocates. Right now, most of the data that public health and harm reduction advocates get comes from when a person dies of an overdose, once it's too late to help. But some experts argue that there is data that could be shared between law enforcement and public health officials right now that could further efforts to reduce the harm in the community, helping track the drugs in the community, how people are using them, and where and when people are using them. Data can also identify areas where drugs are being laced with fentanyl or not. Here's Elise again with Overdose Data to Action. We actually talked about a few of these last episode with Elise, with efforts in Minnesota and in California. But here's one more that she talked about. The Washington, D.C. Crime Lab, it's testing return syringes for fentanyl. That's a model that we looked at. There are also things that we did during the pandemic that could prove to be useful for getting data about drug use now. I would really like to see the state do wastewater testing. It was really successful, I think, for COVID. We can use it also for fentanyl. And there are things that Nevada is doing that are leading the way in the fight against the harm fentanyl and other drugs are doing in our community. UNR actually recently received a grant from the National Institute on Drug Abuse to study the effects of the opioid epidemic on first responders. There is, of course, also the education element when it comes to drug use. Here's Brandon Lusky with the DEA on their efforts to educate youth. We've learned that just throwing the facts at children don't necessarily work. But a big important thing is the why. Also to show some examples. This is a unique job. Kids know pills as they're safe. Doctors prescribe them. It's not this ugly monster of smoking or injecting something into your body. It's a pill. We all know pills are pills are good for you. You get them from doctors. They heal you. That may be an Adderall pill, but you don't know what's in there. And a big part of the discussion and fear around fentanyl has been focused on youth and young adults under the age of 18. But the -the on-the-ground impact of fentanyl on these young people is a small percentage of the total deaths from fentanyl in Nevada. Here's Katie Gwynn with the Clark County Public Defender's Office. I think there's also a lot of hysteria about the effect on youth. We were talking about, you know, fentanyl and Halloween candy and rainbow fentanyl and all that. And I think people should be wary of statistics because, again, in this this Health and Human Services study, they talk about, okay, there's been a 550% increase in opioid overdoses in youth 
But when you look at those numbers, what that actually means is that in 2019, there were two overdoses. And in 2020, there were 13. So yes, that's 13 more use than there should be overdosing. But again, if we're looking at those statistics outside of the context, it becomes a hysteria about children. And then we should ask ourselves, why are children in this position in the first place that they're overdosing? So there are many more solutions that are being proposed and happening right now on the ground when it comes to mitigating the harm that comes from drugs like fentanyl. These drugs that have had such a profound effect on people's lives. But I wanted to shift for a minute here to a personal story of success in overcoming addiction. In episode one of this podcast series, we talked about one of those people whose lives had been changed and almost destroyed because of opioids. Ryan Mills, a former pro BMX rider. Ryan was using regularly for a decade and had overdosed several times. He had been arrested multiple times and was facing a felony in prison time. But he did go to jail several times and while serving one of those sentences was offered the opportunity to go to drug court. And he's one of the rare cases where drug court actually worked and helped him get clean. Now, not only has he been clean for seven years, but he is also working for Overdose Data to Action as a prevention coordinator in Las Vegas. I was cold turkey and I was already in a sober mindset. Like by the time I got out of jail, I think it was five or six months in there that time. Mm -hmm. So I was like kind of already in a good position for myself. And once you quit, I mean, what was it that was keeping you from going back? Sick of the routine and just tired of, you know, going to jail and doing drugs and trying to find like there was 10 years of like this career criminal drug addict person that I didn't know if I was anymore. Even I think it was a miracle. It had the right time, the right place, the right options, and the right mindset to say yes is what got me through it. I've seen drug court fail for lots of people. In the 300 people in the drug court timeline when I was in there, and I know of two or three people that passed. That's a 1%, yeah, 1% success rate. Yeah. And that I was there. But yeah, it's not like impossible because I did it and I was really stuff but yeah it's it's hard you have to have like a lot of support on the outside and luckily i had my bmx friends still that you know let me back in their lives i was pretty fortunate and my whole family you know was there to take me back too so without all that stuff like there's a good chance i would have failed but ryan didn't fail and now he's helping others get clean and help spread a message to advocate for better data in drug reporting to help fight the crisis in this two-part podcast series, we've discussed a lot. And in the coming weeks, legislators will continue to debate bills attempting to tackle fentanyl. Where does that leave us? Where does that leave lawmakers? Is it going to be the fix that we all hope for? Senator Canizaro acknowledged that her bill and bills like the one Attorney General Ford introduced aren't the end-all, be-all solutions to the fentanyl and opioid problem. This is not a piece of legislation that is going to come in and solve all of the issues that exist in the state of Nevada or Las Vegas. But what is part of this legislation and what I think is important is the things like the medication-assisted treatment and the Good Samaritan provision and an acknowledgement that we do need to do more on the demand side to tackle the opioid crisis and also the demand for things like fentanyl. I think that you have to have an open mind for what more we can be doing 
to ensure that recovery programs exist, to ensure that there are educational pieces of this so that people understand the dangerousness, not only of opioids generally, of fentanyl and its derivatives specifically, and that we can continue whatever other supports in the community might exist to ensure that there is sufficient treatment. I think that's a huge piece of it. But the approach, at least in the two biggest fentanyl bills the legislature is working on this session, has largely been to tackle this from a law enforcement side, to be tougher on people who are selling or possessing large amounts of fentanyl, even if we have no way to test or prove the actual amount of fentanyl in the substance. Laws that look to tackle fentanyl from the supply side has received some bipartisan support from lawmakers, including Senator Titus. Being a little tougher on being a supplier is going to be the key. Recreational folks, the people using the drug, the person who's overdosed on drugs should not, they're a victim as far as I'm concerned. And so they should not be the ones that have criminal penalties against them. That person supplying them or the person that is using that small amount to lace the heroin, there needs to be consequences of that. Senator Titus also brought up the bigger picture. Why are people ending up with substance abuse problems or addiction? Behavioral health access. Why do people do drugs? Why do people drink? A lot of times it's mental health issues, and that's usually the way they treat self-medication for self-treatment. And so we need to be able to give them the resources, folks with mental health issues, the resources they need. A big part of this story for me is that those who use and abuse drugs are no different than you or me. They are people who deserve respect. They're not quote unquote others. There are so many circumstances that lead to addiction. Those who are using drugs are victims and it could happen to anyone. I think back to that former high school classmate that I talked about in episode one. It's a scary thought to know that if it happens to you or a loved one, there might not be enough resources to help in the case of addiction or an overdose. Folks that are overdose, people in my rural community look at them as drug addicts, right? They're, they're bad people. They've made a bad, they're a drug addict. And we have to kind of change that perception because these folks, many of them didn't intend to be a drug addict. And people just don't understand that. We as a society have to stop judging. People will continue to use drugs even if there are stiffer penalties or even if they can't find fentanyl. They'll continue to use drugs in the absence of harm reduction, according to Dr. Wagner. We all do risky things, and we can all think about ways to minimize those risks, specifically in the context of drug use, that people who are using drugs are no less worthy and entitled to dignity and health and happiness and well-being than anyone else. The thing that is most important to me about a harm reduction way of thinking about things is that it doesn't require that somebody stop doing what they're doing to live a happy, meaningful, fulfilled life. And people who are using drugs are no less worthy of that than anyone else. It's become so pervasive that at this point, most people know somebody. And that has that has to shift the way we think about this. Services for people who use drugs are not services for those people over there who are not like me and are not part of my community. Services for people who use drugs, including prevention and treatment and harm reduction, are services for all of us in our community because we all know somebody who is affected by this. Members of law enforcement also see that this is something that can only be reduced and not fully eliminated. Here again is Agent Adams with the DEA. I don't like the term drug war, right? Because a war gives the community 
a sense of winning or losing. So will we ever eliminate any crime? We're never going to eliminate burglaries, robberies. That's never going to stop. But we can reduce it as much as possible. So that's the mindset that peaceful people should have. And there's only one way that you can truly stop the drug distribution networks, and that's by eliminating a demand for it. Because people can't sell what no one wants to buy. So ultimately, it's our American populace that could stop it by simply not utilizing illicit narcotics. But if, if the market is still there, then we'll continue doing what we do as law enforcement to make the community safe. This issue and reporting on it led me to contradictory arguments from both sides. There is the harm reduction side and the criminalization side. They are backed by different groups, public health and law enforcement, prosecutors and public defenders, us and them. There is no perfect solution to opioids or fentanyl or whatever drug comes next. There is no way to remove the threat entirely, but there are ways to protect people, to educate people, and to reduce the damaging and deadly effects that drugs like fentanyl have on the people that use them. Empathy and compassion are needed, and there are people in law enforcement and people in harm reduction communities, and there are lawmakers and doctors and lawyers and recovering addicts and volunteers who are working to come to a solution. I'll leave you with these words from Elise. The opioid epidemic is not an opioid epidemic. The opioid epidemic is a symptom of a loneliness epidemic in a sadness epidemic, in an addiction epidemic. Like opioid is just this thing that has magnified all of these big system issues. We have a up criminal justice system. We have a up behavioral health system. We are like no longer believing in institutions. Like, so that all of these things that like separate us, we get alone. It's just, opioids is just this, this thing that has happened as all of these other parts of society have just become really hard for people. So we call it an opioid epidemic, but it's not that. It's all of these other things. And, you know, we're talking about fentanyl today. We talked about fentanyl for an hour. Five years ago, we weren't talking about fentanyl. In two years, we're going to be talking about some other drug that none of us have ever even heard of or thought of. That's why we need to improve our ability to do substance surveillance, because in two years, five years, 10 years, we're going to be talking about some other drug that's killing people. And we're just going to be waiting for the bodies to pile up so we can figure out what to do about it. Because that's what we did with opioids. That's what we're doing with fentanyl. So it's just it's hard. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. The story was reported, produced, and edited by me, Joey Lovato. I also want to thank my wonderful editors on this story, Daniel Rothberg and Michelle Rendells, whose guidance helped me during this long and complex reporting process. There are so many people who helped with this story, including Tabitha Mueller, Kristen Leonard, Jackie Valley, Tim Leonard, Sean Galanka, and all of my other colleagues at the Nevada Independent. I also wanted to thank everyone who talked to me for this story. Senator Nicole Cannizzaro, Senator Robin Titus, Dr. Carla Wagner, Elise Monroy, Ryan Mills, Dr. Laura Knight, Erica Roth, John Pirro, Katie Gwynn, Special Agent Kevin Adams, Intelligence Research Specialist Christy Nielsen, Enforcement Group Supervisor Brandon Lusky, Intelligence Supervisor Marty Lewis, Gabe Stern, Lisa Lee, Dr. Mark Pandori, Ryan Hampton, 
and the many law enforcement, first responders, current and former drug users, and others who talk to me off the record. Thank you. Overcrowded classrooms, record educator vacancies, yet politicians want to give $500 million to a California billionaire and stash $2.4 billion in reserves, while our students and educators suffer. It's a rainy day in Nevada. It's time for 20. Paid for by Nevada State Education Association.